friends, welcome to This Week in the Way of Jesus, a podcast by the 8th Street Church. We are a spiritual community of hope and transformation that is trying to live this way of Jesus. You'll find both weekly spiritual practices and weekly sermons on this podcast feed. For more information about the 8th Street Church, please visit our website, www.8thstreetchurch.org, or our social media pages linked in the show notes below. Your Bibles, if you would, to the prophet Micah of the Old Testament. Every, uh, every week we read out of the Revised Common Lectionary, which is a series of organized uh, chapters and verses. And today, in the fourth, fourth Sunday in the season of Epiphany, we find ourselves here in this Old Testament reading. I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word for us today. This is a passage that you have heard before, but uh, my hope is that you would hear it again maybe for the first time. Hear the word of the Lord from Micah chapter 6, reading verses 1 through 8. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, where I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness? The people say, what should we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pray for our sins? No, people. The Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you. To do what is right. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of God for the people of God. So we say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. That ending statement, to do what is right, most translations to say, it says to do what is just, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the the liturgical reading of the Old Testament from the Revised Common Lectionary that's been chosen for us today. And uh, considering the events of the last two weeks, the irony is not lost on me. Churches around the world have been reading this exact same text and the words that we read today, and they are the voice of God, the words of God for, the, for us, the people of God. And they are a bit painful considering uh, the week that we've been through. Last year, after the shooting at the Topps grocery store in Buffalo, New York, I made a statement about violence and our role in it and what God thinks about it and how the church continues to be complicit in and with these sorts of violent acts in the world. And when we found out about the Uvalde and Robb Elementary school shooting just a few weeks later, someone asked me if we needed to make another statement. And to be quite honest, I had nothing. I mean, what could be said that's not already been said? Now we have more events back to back, this time older Asian folks bringing horror to their own Asian communities in California two times in the last 10 days. 
And this week, we've all seen the brutal beatings, uh, the brutal beating by police officers in Memphis, Tennessee, that has left, left, uh, left, uh, led to the death of uh, Tyra Nichols. Uh, this week, a friend of mine, a Vietnamese American, sat in my office and wept. She said all the feelings that she had been feeling from when she had to flee Saigon when she was six years old, these feelings that had been shaped by war and then by being a refugee and never feeling like she actually ever belonged anywhere because her parents were here and they couldn't speak English. And while they were highly educated, they were forced to work low-paying, blue-collar jobs. Uh, they, they were forced to live in a dangerous neighborhood. All of those feelings of insecurity, lack of emotional and social and finance, financial security uh, boiled their way to the surface again at the reporting of the news that, that we all heard. And because I don't know what I'm doing, I sent a note to our church board asking them for help. What is it that we say in times like these? What is the right course of action? How should we help our people process these things? How should we process them ourselves? And I'm really grateful for our church board. The messages that came back were messages of comfort and lament and uh, confessions, actually. And they reflected on our temptation to stick these events in a certain category alongside car accidents or natural disasters, that they're just so common that that's the way we had to think about them emotionally and psychologically because they're just too hard to deal with. They, uh, they, they said that the sentiment can be nothing we say is going to change anything. That's the temptation that they admitted to. And I'm tempted to believe that too, except Yesterday, after another friend of mine, an African-American leader and pastor, called and he pleaded with me by saying, I need you to do me a favor, please. As the pastor of the 8th Street Church, make sure that you say something about these events. Make sure that you say something about what happened in Memphis. He said, I have to face my church tomorrow, and I'm not sure what I'm going to say, but we, meaning black folks and black churches, can't survive if all the white brothers and sisters are silent. So please, I'm begging you, tell me you're going to say something. So what do we say here at the 8th Street Church that's not already been said? The fact is, if you've been around for very long, you know that we address issues like this. And the fact is, we know that silence is damning. We have no more words, so we say things like this, Lord have mercy. But while there were these confessions from the board and temptations from the board, they were also incredibly encouraging and, and they gave wisdom and guidance. And here's what one of them said. I think that being in the position of communicating and responding each time these things happen, which feels almost daily at times, must be disheartening. And I also believe that when we stop responding in the face of repeated tragedy, we become numb to it in a sense, and in a sense, evil wins a battle. You are right that all the words have been said, and I believe there is value in, but I believe there is value in their repetition. The Bible has many examples of individuals praying the same thing over and over and over again, and we as a community should be doing the same thing to address the senseless patterns of violence that plagues our society. He says, I would be, I would be in favor of continuing to acknowledge and address these moments even as they happen so frequently. Thanks for leading our community, to which I appreciated very much. And then another said this, I appreciate the heart and passion to be a leader who calls out our body of believers to live the way of Jesus. Your comments on Sunday, 
I don't know, reflect the way that all of us are feeling. We don't know, but we pray on and on, and we do the next right thing every time, over and over again. I think this is real wisdom from our leaders. The truth of the matter is, we've said all the words, but in light of of this wisdom, I'm going to say what I have said before, and I'm going to keep saying it over and over and over again at their urging and under their wisdom. And and here, here are the words. We find ourselves again in this story, this story once again, and it's a story that's as old as time, and it's getting to be a, a story that is so old that I'm sick of it. It's a foundational story to the Jewish people. It's foundational to the Christian story. Because the people were growing up at such a rapid rate, Pharaoh was worried that eventually the Hebrews would amass an army to overtake him, so he decided to beat them to the punch. This is the story. Each young boy upon, the deli- upon his delivery was to be thrown into the Nile River. This would incite fear and keep the folks under control. And this is how it seems to begin. Heinous acts, mass execution, Egyptian officers brought up and trained to, in a brutalizing system to keep the people in line. It's a circle of fear and power and control and violence. And every time there's something like this, every time there's an event like this, like the ones we've seen recently, there is incessant chatter. It happens on all the social media platforms. Arguments take place about mental illness and violence and personal rights and gun control and policing and on and on and on. But honestly, let's admit we are in a cycle of insanity. The events that we find here are the events that take place in the Exodus story. Every mass shooting, every act of poor policing, every act of brother killing brother or sister killing sister, and every act of evil in our lives is the story of Pharaoh played out in real time. And we become characters in this tragedy. This this story of Pharaoh, this is the story of Pharaoh, and this is the story that is foundation, foundational to the Jewish people. And they told this story over and over and over again, even though everybody knew it. And then they made sure to write it down for this one reason, so it would not be forgotten. Because once the story is forgotten, then surely, most definitely, it's going to be repeated. The story is one of darkness, tears, fears, murder, anger, violence, destruction, tragedy, despair, death. The story is rated R. It's the story of a madman, a psychopath, a king named Pharaoh who holds all of the power in the land and is threatened by a little group of poor travelers who made their way into his land searching for something to eat in the middle of a famine. And he feared them. We can see this happen in our own lives, in the American way of life. Even in this first couple chapters of that story. Time after time, throughout the Old Testament and the Scriptures, the people are called on. They're implored, begged, pleaded with to remember. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt. Remember that God saved you. Remember God's commands. But they would forget. And we keep forgetting. We don't want to remember It's easier just to put this in the category of car accidents. Just happens. Natural disasters. It just happens. The Jewish people, as do the Christians, they tell this story so that we all might remember. 
And we want to never forget. So it won't happen again. That's why we tell this story. And yet it keeps happening because we've forgotten. And by forgetting, we believe that we are removed, somehow isolated from these incidents. But let's not forget what Dr. King reminded us of, and that is a lack of justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are the moral, the church is the moral and social conscience of society. It's our first responsibility to remember, and then our second responsibility to lament these injustices, and then to embody a new kind of way in the world. The way we start all this is by remembering. Each year on the calendar, we've set aside a day called Memorial Day, and we remember the people who gave their lives in the name of freedom, right? And the name of honor. We say that the giving of one's life, we repeat this narrative every single year, we say that the giving of one's life is the ultimate sacrifice, and we don't want to forget those who gave their lives. Some of them were your relatives, your grandfathers, your nieces and nephews and cousins and aunts and uncles and parents. They gave their lives so that no one else would have to. So this would never happen again. That's why remember, why we remember. My friend Dan asked his dad why he dropped out of school at 17 to sign up to fight in World War II when he knew that there was a good chance that he wasn't coming back home. And he said, I did it so that nobody else would ever have to again. Each year, some of us run a marathon. It happens right here. It goes right by our church. And what do we say? We say we run to remember. Why? So that whatever happened a few blocks away 25 years ago would never happen again. The matter is, we are prone to amnesia and we forget. And every next gunshot, every next declaration of war, every life that is taken, every act of racism and brutality, makes it so that every single person who has given their lives makes it so that they've given their lives in vain. Lives were given, so no more lives would have to be. But we keep on going. And we got to stop this. We're sick. As Christians and pastors, especially white Christians and white pastors, We've led the way, completely dismantling what it means to follow in the Jesus way. And instead of picking up our crosses, we are committed. We, we are committing these acts by directly or indirectly defending them. And as a result, our baptism vows hold no water, pun intended. Those baptism vows come to mean nothing because we've denied them for new vows, personal rights, individual freedoms, liberty from responsibility. One of our board members, because of the issues that we've been facing this week, was lamenting uh, th- it was lamenting with me about two different conversations with close personal friends of his who declared that because of these events, God is dead and so is the church. And I've wondered if he's right. There's a fictional tale of the Knights of Templar where the soldiers, before they went into battle, held the shield with the sign of the cross in one hand, and they were baptized before going into battle. And as they were immersed in water, they would hold up their sword with the right hand as they were pushed in the water. That way, as they held up the sword with their right hand, uh, their bodies were baptized, but their swords were not, so that they were able to carry out the desires of conquering their enemies. No wonder confessions are made, uh, concessions are made, excuse me, excuses are given, and people 
post these kinds of kind of silly things during days like these, in, insensitive things, completely wrecking what the author of the Genesis story was even trying to convey. From the beginning of the Bible, this is not a gun rights issue. It's a biblical issue because from the beginning of the Bible, we have this horrific, gut-wrenching story about a man who kills his own brother, a story that we're told so that a brother will stop killing a brother. Like, you know this story so that you won't do it again, and we've manhandled it, and we've twisted it so it means nothing. And this is exactly what took place in Memphis. And in this case, we're tempted to call this black-on-black crime or to make excuses or concessions for the reasons of these acts and the reasons why people act in these ways. But we cannot forget that those of us with white skin have actually perpetrated a system that encourages these kinds of heinous acts. Let's Let's stop pretending that we can be somehow isolated from them. When these kinds of ways of interpreting the Bible are at the front forefront, it becomes clear that instead of allowing the scriptures to read us and shape us into a new way of life, we read them and we shape them so that they can say to us what we need them to say so that we can continue to live the lives that we want. This is why when this happens, when all is said and done, all we're left with is thoughts and prayers. That's the famous thing that we can hashtag, right? And even we clergy have come to realize that that means nothing. So these are the words I've said to you before. And when needed, I'll say them to you again. The fact of the matter is this. I am so sad. I'm just really sad. And I am tired of this story. I understand now why they called Jeremiah the weeping prophet. He stood and he watched his world fall apart. And one board member said, we've we've arrived. We're in Rome. Now, according to the prophet Micah, The Lord is bringing charges against his people, not just because of the crimes they've committed, but first because they forgot. And they come to worship, and they pay their tithes, and they dedicate their children. But they have forgotten what is first and what is most important. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. These are the words that we hear. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the the hills hear what you have to say. This is what God is saying to the people. Hear you mountains now. The Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burned you? Answer me. I brought you out of Egypt. I I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent you Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what I've done in the past? How I've rescued you in the past? Remember these journeys that you've been on? They were so that you might remember the righteous acts of the Lord. I'm I'm sad. But you know what? When I read this text, in reading this text, I, I actually don't see a fiery God that has steam coming out of his nose. I see a God who is also sad. Very sad. With a deep, guttural sadness. We call this lament. And it's lament because God has not forgotten. And God watches us as we wander around, lost in our amnesia, doing these things over and over again. And God's example shows us that when we remember, the next step is to lament. It's just to be sad. And lament might just be for us the best place to start. 
You know, Pharaoh's, part of Pharaoh's sinister plot was for the people at the bottom, those Hebrew slaves, those working in the brickyard, just to become content with where they were. Even those who were at the bottom, they, they, would, they would say to themselves, his plot was to get them to say to themselves, it's been like this for generations and generations and nothing is going to change. And that was part of Pharaoh's master plan. Because if you can get the people to start believing that, then all hope is lost. But something miraculous happened in the brickyard that changed everything. And it was this. They cried. They cried. And to cry is to finally say something is not right about this. And miraculously, God can do something with lament. And God, the text tells us, says, heard their cry. This cry is, now this cry is more than a good cry where we dab our eyes and we feel like we've gotten it out of ourselves. This is ugly cry stuff here, right? It is lament, a collective primal scream that comes deep within us. And it needs to come up out of all of us and come up out of all of us together. This, I think, is why my African-American friend was making this request, this request to say something. He was asking us to join him and his community in this primal scream. We gotta do this. Paul says that when one rejoices, everybody rejoices. But when when one suffers, all should as well, right? That is what the primal scream is. That is what the lament is all about. Only by joining together in this great lament after such terrible injustice can we even begin to slightly, the least little bit, begin to move forward. It's only in offering up our cries and walking humbly with the God whose name is I heard their cries and I acted, can we begin today to love mercy and then in the end to act justly. So as we lament together and we start with that place, I want us to be encouraged, even amidst all that, by the wisdom of the Jewish leaders who understood their story and understood oppression way better than I do. And they, they, the rabbis gave uh, this suggestion. Here's the suggestion. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. And the work begins in lament. It's only in lament and our lament and togetherness can we be brought to this place of peace. So in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to the Lord's table. But before we do that, uh, I've put myself out there and and I'd I'd like us to pray together. So let us pray this prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. Most merciful God, We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Almighty God, have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ and strengthen us in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us into eternal life. 
Amen. I once heard a Christian person say, the gov- I once heard a person say, the government is coming to take our guns, but the more accurate statement is this, that Jesus has come and is coming again to take away our guns. And I would say, thanks be to God for that, because what that means is this, Jesus has come to take away the violence. That's what that statement means. Jesus has come to take away the suffering. Jesus has come so that we don't, in the end, end up killing each other. So we get to come to this place and admit it. We are sad, but we are also scared, and we confess that, scared of sickness, scared of an unsure economy, scared of climate change, scared of crowds, scared of mass shootings, scared for our children. But we have not received a spirit of fear, but we have received the spirit of God. And by God, we can make a change. And so we lean deep into God. That is what our baptism was all about. It is not just a a going bold for Jesus, or it's not just about our own personal piety or a statement that we are saved for heaven someday. But it's in our baptism that we start remembering what has happened. We were immersed in life in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we said yes when we were asked, do we now renounce everything that will draw us away from the love of God? We remember when we come to the table that on that night, the night that he was betrayed by those he came to save, he did not repay them with vengeance. We remember when we come to the table that he paid for their sins by exchanging his own life for theirs. We remember that he held up the the bread and broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat it as you remember me. And we remember that after supper, he held up the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant, a new way of doing things in the world. It comes through my shed blood. It is for you and it is on your behalf. So drink this in affectionate remembrance of me. So Jesus called his 12 disciples together around the table. And even though they acted as his enemies, he offered to them friendship and forgiveness. And that's the same thing that he offers us today. So today, I want to invite you to the Lord's table. I want to let you know that this is not a Church of the Nazarene table. It is not an 8th Street Church table. It's certainly not my table. This is Jesus' table, and all who are open to this work of God in Christ are welcome. All who are broken and are lamenting, you are welcome to this table. And perhaps at this table, we might all find healing together. So I want to invite you to this table, but I want you to know, if you come to this table, this table means that things change in the world. And Jesus invites us, but he also invites us. He also invites us because he's calling us to do as he did, to pick up our crosses and to follow him in his way. So before you come to this table, I invite you to think about if that way is, is what the way that you want to live. What do you have in your hands that you need to put down so that you might have an empty hand to do what is good and to do what comes from God? So I want to invite you to this table, and I want to invite you to leave the outside of your, uh, your rows there and come down the outside aisle and approach one of these servers. We receive communion by intinction here at the 8th Street Church, and we receive it. We don't take it because it's a gift. So approach one of these servers, dip the bread into the cup after you listen to what they have to say, and then, you can, and then, and then eat it. And then, if you'd like, because we are per- people who are burdened, Uh, During the season of Epiphany, we've put out these candles, and if you're carrying a burden or a prayer, uh, we welcome you, we invite you to light one of these candles, and we we invite you to pray on behalf of one another. And so if you have a burden or prayer, light one of the candles. And then we've kept the baptism font here in the middle, 
And we want you to remember your baptism because it's an invitation into a new way. So as you, as you pass the baptism font, if you've been baptized, we invite you to stick your fingers into the font to feel the water and to know that your life is new again. So friends, when you're ready to come to this table, you're thinking about uh, how you want to live the way of Jesus in this world and accept the invitation, then I invite you to come. So friends, uh, come whenever you Friends, each week we invite our congregation to respond to what they have heard by entering into a weekly spiritual practice. You can find that episode to practice and enter into this way of Jesus in the podcast feed. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you wherever you go.